Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is August the 6th, 2014. This is episode 1402 of the Survival Podcast. It's interview day, so I have Frank Salzano of the Firefly Gatherings hanging on the line. We're going to have a great discussion about primitive skills. And this interview got really, really interesting with deeper philosophical conversations between Frank and myself. Um, some really amazing thoughts that Frank had at the end. I think you'll be listening to that section more than once. I note during the interview that I certainly will. Before I bring Frank on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. That is the awesome, the amazing, the frankly badass Frank Sharp Jr. at FortressDefense.com. Fortress Defense is the firearms training school for your needs, man. I'm telling you, they are just crack professionals. I've had enough feedback from enough audience members at this point that I know that they would be my go-to recommendation for anybody that wanted to improve their skills with firearms. And I'll tell you this, it's something you need to consider and something you need to really think about doing in your life. If you are an armed citizen and armed for the purpose of defense of yourself, others, and property, you need training to go along with it. I say it all the time, the triangle of gun operator efficiency is the weapon, the ammunition, and the, the linchpin at the top is you, the operator. When will I stop telling you that? Never, and I'll tell you why. Because it is the most important concept for the armed citizen to grasp. If you are to be effective in defense of life, liberty, property, and the safety of your loved ones, then you, the operator, are more important than the weapon or the ammunition. You can have half-assed weapons and half-assed ammunition, and most times, if you're a good operator, you can get by. If you're a crappy operator, you end up dead or end up hurting someone. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's why you should take training from someone like Frank and his cadre of instructors. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up today... Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Hey, do you think the water from your faucet's safe to drink? Do you know there's boil water advisories in several parts of the United States right now? Uh, there's one place, uh, I think it's near getting their water from Lake Erie or something like that, where uh, it's, it's don't drink the water. That's the, that's the advice. It's not boil. Uh, the toxins that are in the water from an algal bloom actually get worse if you boil the water. See, the problem with a lot of these boil water advisories or don't drink advisories is not just that you're without water. It's that by the time the clowns running the show figure out that, hey, something's wrong, you've been drinking the water for like a week. I hope you didn't get sick during that time. Well, one line of defense, and that is a Berkey water filtration system. Hey, how about chlorine and chloramine? You want to drink that crap? I know why they put that in the water. It makes sense to me. It keeps it from becoming contaminated. It actually is a valid use of a chemical in our modern water supply. To supply water to millions of people, they got to do it. Doesn't mean you got to drink it. You can get out of there, get it out of there with a Berkey. Uh, how about fluoride, though? Do you really think we still live in a society where we need to be putting fluoride in water? I'll put it to you this way. I think drinking fluoride to protect your teeth makes about as much sense as drinking suntan lotion to protect your skin. It just doesn't make any sense at all. We can put fluoride in toothpaste if we want to protect our teeth. I want it out of my water. I don't worry about it because I have a well and we don't have it anymore. But when I did have fluoride in my water because I was on city water, I got the second set of filters, the lower filters for my Berkey, and I took the, 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 the uh, fluoride and any arsenic out of my water. 
You can do that too. Berkeys look great. They're awesome. And Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, will give you a better deal than anyone else on a Berkey. And he'll certainly give you better customer service than anybody else. Check him out today. His website is Directive21. And remember, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, has many things for your prepping needs beyond Berkey's. But if you're going to get a Berkey, get it from Jeff, the Berkey guy. Don't be the person that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. Jeff's been supporting this show a long time. Show him some love. Support him back. Remember, you know, you only make so much money on a system. When you need new filters, go to Jeff and check out his new priming tool as well. He's the guy that supports us, so we should support him. Next up today on support, hey, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade, the Members Support Brigade for the Survival Podcast. It's awesome. It's not charity. You're not donating to me. It is an incredible product. I've worked very hard over the years to build the value of the MSB into something really spectacular. If you're buying things for prepping, home studying, all that stuff from gardens to guns, practical to tactical, and everything else in between, if you're investing in your self-sufficiency and self-reliance on an annual basis, a little bit here and a little bit there, use my discounts and your membership more than pays for itself. Hey, a membership that's actually profitable and supports the podcast you like to listen to daily, that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to put your bucks. Honest to God, guys, it's how I make this show run. It's how I do this for a living. It's how I continue to dedicate my, myself every day to making the show better, bringing you more content, more features, better guests, you name it. It's all about the MSB. Without that, I could not do it. So please consider joining today if you've not done so in the past. Just go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members. Remember, I do take cash, check, money order, uh, and even barter by mail. You can send me stuff by mail. And I take silver by mail. Biggest discount you can get is to pay in silver, one year per ounce. So consider that. Online, I take PayPal, and I also take Bitcoin. Again, just click on Members to learn more about that. Uh, with that, let's go to the year that was the episode, the year 1402. What was going on in 1402? Same kind of shit that goes on today, just to be blunt and honest. I have two sections for you, two segments that are put together by uh, Alex today. Parliament in the Welsh Revolt and Tamerlane, the Ottomans and the Christians. If you want to know about what Tamerlane's doing, which is continuing to slaughter people, you'll have to go to TSP Wiki and read it for yourself today. Because I'm going to read Parliament and the Welsh Revolt because it sounds an awful lot like what people do try to do today to control others. With King Richard II of England dead, and King Henry IV as the new king, the Welsh decide to start a war of independence from England. Ultimately, it will not succeed. But in the midst of the revolt, Parliament passes several laws against the Welsh, known as the Penal Laws Against Wales. One, no right to assembly. Hmm. Two, no right to bear arms. Three, no right for a Welsh court to convict an Englishman. Four, no right to own a castle or build defenses for one's own home. Five, no right to sell armor or supplies to the Welsh without a license. <laughs> Six, no right for the Welsh to hold office. Seven, no musicians or idle rich allowed. So if you're a Welshman, you have to work for a living. If you're an Englishman, you're allowed to be a musician or an idle rich person. The Parliament also passes the Benefit of Clergy Act. It, is, it essentially allows the clergy, clergy the benefit of being hanged for treason and to be convicted of theft under the same rules of evidence of anyone else. Before this law was passed, the clergyman could be judged innocent if he could produce 12 people who would swear he was innocent. What? 
That doesn't mean that they know he's innocent. They just say, I swear this guy's innocent. He's off the hook. Uh, so that went away. But he still has the benefit of clergy for many other crimes. This will remain true well into the 1800s, though by that time it will be unused as a defense. It will be repealed due to this embarrassment that the law was still on the books. My take by Alex Shrugged. Well, it's hard to blame Parliament for outlawing musicians, layabouts, and buffoons, but the rest is just senseless. Actually, I have a big problem with them banning buffoons and layabouts and musicians. As long as I don't have to pay for you, you can be the biggest bum in the world if you want to, and I like musicians, they make music. England has had several wars with Wales. Parliament didn't pass laws to stop it. The king fielded an army to stop it. Regarding the clergy, they have been taking advantage of the dual nature of the law. There's a common law and there's a church law. The clergy have the right to be tried under church law for many crimes. That usually means they get off the hook. Next, Parliament must tackle the question of who exactly is the clergy. Lots of people can lay claim to be clergy, including college students, anyone who can read the Bible in Latin, or in some cases, even one who just shaves the top of his head in a circular patch. So the church gets away with crap they shouldn't get away with, and uh, people hide under the auspices of religion, and those who piss off the tyrants have their rights stripped. I'm not even going to give you my take. Just to say this, the more ch things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I have hanging on the line about to be introduced Mr. Frank Salzano of the Firefly Gatherings. He's an amazing young man. He's also a permaculturist. We're really going to talk today about um, Firefly Gatherings and primitive skills. But Frank's actually establishing a staple food forest in his own life right now in Laurel, North Carolina, where he homesteads and experiments a great deal with permaculture farming. I'm going to extend an uh, invitation to him to come back and talk just about that, because today we're going to talk about his primitive skills. We're going to talk about sustainable skills and modern sustainable skills and how those all blend together, along with traditional skills, the history of Appalachia, the uh, special region that it is, and the saving and you know uh, holding cherish and sacred of these skill sets and not letting them die as the last generation that was practicing them uh, as a way of life is, is now reaching the very old age and, and leaving us. Again, he's an awesome dude. I'm glad to have him here with us at the Survival Podcast. And with that, hey, Frank, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. So I've got you on to talk about primitive skills and firefly, the firefly gathering. Um, before we get into that, though, can you give people just a little background about yourself and how you ended up in working with primitive skills, environmental, sustainability, permaculture, all this good stuff? Um, were you born into it, or like many of us, did you take sort of a crooked path that led you here? <laughs> That's a good question. Um I would say that I took a very crooked path to get here. Um, me personally is um, basically what wound up happening is I grew up in southern West Virginia, and the experience I had there in childhood was one of uh, witnessing and experiencing a lot of environmental destruction and um, largely based around the coal and gas industries, uh, largely mountaintop removal. And... You know, that environmental destruction also leads to a real culture of poverty and exploitation and a pretty damaged, struggling uh, social system in place for people that live there. And so um, so I kind of grew up with that kind of awareness and experience 
Um, and then I, I went to college, and while I was in college, with that sense of environmental um, justice kind of ethic in me, and urgency and motivation to to struggle politically on that front, um, I ran for public office and spent some time on city council and spent a lot of time working with local nonprofits at the same time and was pretty discouraged at the reality of the political system and that being a place for social change to happen. And so um, all that kind of accumulated to to me having the experience of really asking myself what's the personal things I really need, what are the emotional things I really need, uh, how do I get my needs really met for building a deeper, healthier, loving community and uh, having a, a deeper, real sense of safety and security in my life for me and the people around me. Um, and so, yeah, in a nutshell, that was kind of kind of the route I took, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'd actually, before we get into the primitive skill stuff, I'd like to back up just a minute and uh, discuss something with you that I think a lot of people aren't aware of, and that is the damage that especially coal mining does to a community because it's always presented when people go in to do these mining activities as look at all the jobs we'll create. But uh-huh. since it is extraction, it always leads to what you said, poverty. I grew up in anthracite country. You're down in bituminous country, right? So. Uh-huh. The the, the 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 extraction there is like, like you're talking about this full mountaintop removal where the extraction method that was done where I grew up is a different scar on the earth. It looks more like a meteor hit. It's strip mining where they just, just gouge massive holes. And mm-hmm. I do think that that has a tremendous cost on society. We hear today all these things about pollution and all from burning this stuff. But I, I don't think people really understand the damage that's done through the extraction and how damaging that is to the the places that you and I probably both hold to be very beautiful and very sacred in in, in the the Eastern woods. Um, I don't know exactly what the side effects you see in your environment down there, but for instance, where I grew up, many of the streams that my grandfather told me used to be teeming with trout were orange uh, and slimy from sulfur oxidation in the streams. And we had these huge, cold, slush, black deserts all over the place. And it's just, it's an awful thing, but I think if people haven't ever seen it, they don't really understand it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you hit on a number of points there. Um, it's, there's a there's an experience that's happening in industrial culture and in this industrial society where so many things are compartmentalized out and so many externalities, so many of the liabilities of how we live are externalized out where you don't have to see them, you know, to places in the global south, with third world countries, with globalization, and, you know, you can go on and on and on. And, you know, and they, they talk about it, um, the activist community, which is, you know, not a thing imposed from the outside. It's lots of times a very local, strong presence of people who grew up there as well. Um, you know, they talk about it as it's a colonization, a domestic form of colonization happening on United States soil, you know, and they do talk about it in terms of the cradle-to-grave process. It is not just the burning of coal. It is the extraction of coal. I mean, obviously climate change is, you know, a very serious uh, issue (laughs) and kind of a, you know, a lot of people in the scientific community would say the kind of heart of the impending ecological doom that industrial society is causing 
but um, but the sheer production side of the spectrum should be enough for people to very deeply, intuitively, and emotionally understand that this is not something that is a healthy way to live and for people to meet their needs and to subsist, you know? Um, and, yeah, it's just... I can go on and on, but, I mean, in a nutshell, it's just like when you are in the middle of the most temperate, biologically diverse place in the world and the the beauty, the sacredness, uh, the 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 inspiration that that land gives to to the human soul, I think, and to the cultures that should be uh, nesting in that place, you know, and that belong in that the type of culture that belongs in that space. Um, it's such a crazy radical juxtaposition to when you look at the earth and it looks like a moon, like a totally barren desert moonscape. Um, and what that does to the psyche of the people, the real poverty of what it does to the, to the, the social and personal life of people in that space is just so detrimental because not only is it the obvious economics of how it leaves communities poor, you know, and the things that go along with poverty, um, but it's not something of the human psyche that makes the human psyche uh, struggle. It, it makes it struggle on a deeper level to find beauty in the world and, and happiness. Um, and that's just kind of a couple of things I really think about whenever I go home. Um, and it's a real tragedy, and it's a lot of grief around that. And I don't know what um, – it's really got to change, you know? Yeah, I do. And, I mean, we probably have some disagreements about CO2, but I, I think is I, I consider myself an environmentalist because I'm right. concerned about the environment. I think a lot of people on the, the side of the environment would, would actually get more people on board with fixing crap if we just pointed to the scars and the damage and the pollution people can see. I don't want to right. go down that rabbit hole because we're here to talk about other things. But as we look at scars like that, part of what's been lost in that whole rapid industrialization of these rural areas uh-huh. and then okay we've gotten all the coal out of the ground goodbye we're gonna go do this somewhere else and you leave behind these people that have left their their way of life that they've known you know their families have known for hundreds of years going back to colonial days some of these areas like you're talking about i'm talking about is all of the skills that they knew how to live from got replaced with this modern extraction mentality and now right. the jobs are gone the land uh-huh. is damaged and the skills are missing so that's a big part of why you guys do the work you do with firefly and the primitive skills gatherings correct yeah man thank you so much for bringing it to that point that's a really great place to take it um i there appalachian culture is not you know historically and traditionally it's not perfect um you know like a lot of things in the united states history um, but it is one of the, the places where there was a really rich, diverse cultural tradition uh, with hard skills, with people living off the land, uh, people really knowing how to survive, um, as well as the, the cultural components inside of that, the storytelling, the ballads, the songs. I mean, there's a reason why Appalachia has this place in American memory and, um, and awareness that it's a it's a culture worth saving and it's cultural traditions and heritages that are worth saving um, and preserving. 
and and we have since since Firefly is nestled um, in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains, right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. We have um, this really rich surrounding, still very present environment um, and resource pool to draw from in the people there. You know, because the Blue Ridge Mountains are not uh, sedimentary geology, because there's no coal there, it's um, it's old volcanoes that were metamorphosized, so it's a totally different type of rock, um, bedrock, where you won't find coal um, or natural gas or stuff like that, then, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains haven't had to deal with some of the abusive land practices and extraction industry um, that you have had to deal with in places like West Virginia and Kentucky and parts of Virginia and Pennsylvania and stuff. And so, in a lot of ways, the Appalachian, the richness of Appalachian culture there just hasn't been so violated um, and abused. And so, it it creates this, it really creates the perfect little nest to have a thing like Firefly because not only is there all of these alternative subcultures um, that dip into survivalism, uh, contributing like primitive skills and permaculture and homesteading and gardening and farming and you know the list goes on and on um, and crafts and baskets and but there's also the way that those things integrate into the old timers and the locals there and there are lineages there are traditions uh, passed on and and so it's this really eclectic mix um, to to put together to really in my mind what it really boils down to is is making a cultural renaissance that is holding on to the traditions that are worth holding on to and mixing them with the vision and future and alternative lifestyles uh, that we want to have in the future and that are being innovated and creating and being created as we speak, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, there is something special about the region, and I mean, technically we're talking all the way from parts of Mississippi up into New York, but the uh, heart of it is in that Virginia, Western Carolinas, Kentucky, up and through central PA. And right. it's the only place that I know of, like where I grew up in central PA, uh, and we say stupid things like that from Pennsylvania, we're like the only state that calls ourselves PA. Like people from Carolina never say they're like from NC or whatever, but... Right, right. The schools are still closed on the first day of deer season where I went to high school. Uh-huh. And, and there's places in Virginia, West Virginia, et cetera, like that. When something like that's going on, it's it's an indication that the the tradition of putting meat on the table, for instance, just as one thing, is actually taken seriously. And it's interwoven into the the culture of the of the region. At a level, I don't think it's a special place. I guess is what I'm saying. I don't. You know, I live in Texas now, but there's always a certain part of me that 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 it will always be linked to that region. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. It's your home. Once it's in you, man, it's in you. You know, you bring it with you everywhere you go. You know. Definitely. So you guys are trying to revive a lot of this stuff, and oh, sorry. you have over 200 classes that are part of the Firefly. So can you talk about some of those? What are some of the things people can learn? Yeah, oh man, that's a biggie. So that's what my job is specifically at this gathering, is I'm the class coordinator. We have a pretty big staff, um, so it's a big, it's the largest one in the country, so it's, um, it's, you know, about a thousand people, and, um, and it's amazing 
having such a large gathering because, you know, the more, uh, the bigger the gathering, the more support and resources that go into it and the more classes you can have and the more class diversity you can have. Um, so yeah, we do have about 250 classes, um, over four days and, um, each class is about three hours long and there's two a day. So the way it's categorized is that we have, we have four general categories. Um, one category is the primitive skills, hard skills, um, bushcraft, survivalism kind of track. And there's usually about, um, you know, there's usually about 40 to 50 classes going on at any one time. So you'll get, you know, somewhere between 10 to 15 of those at once going on um, in each kind of category. And that's going to involve everything from, you know, all the traditional primitive skills that you think of, uh, from bow making to friction fire to hide panning to more advanced stuff. Like, once you have your hide done, what about... Uh, strategies for filling up buckskin, you know, there's kind of like a, you, everyone can come there no matter how much of a beginner or how advanced your skills already are, and you can find something for you. So, um, you know, if you already know how to do standard bow drill friction fire, you might find the advanced Egyptian type of bow drill, you know, or, you know, kind of, um, and so then there's that kind of category of the the basic primitive skills and survival skills. And then there is a tract that is more gardening, homesteading, permaculture, um, and gets into all the creating resilient food systems on the land. And um, and then, you know, that one, you know, in the same way, you'll find a whole kind of spectrum from beginner to advanced in that. Um, I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's like it's a large enough gathering with so many classes that there are – there's permaculture gatherings in the area that don't have as many permaculture classes as we do. There's herbalist conferences in the area that don't have as many herb classes as we do. There is other primitive skills gatherings that don't have as many strictly primitive skills classes as we do. Um, so it's a real good mix of all kinds of stuff. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have the gardening, permaculture, animal husbandry, um, homesteading kind of track. And then there is, like pretty much just a full-on track for all types of fiber arts and baskets and craft making. And that gets into all kinds of just all kinds of traditional crafts from uh, spoon carving to, uh, you know, usually there's three or four different types of basket making going on. Sometimes it's more worldly traditions of from other cultures that people have gone and learned. Sometimes it's traditional Appalachian basket making. Um and then all kinds of fiber art and spinning and, you know, pretty much everything you need to make all your own clothes. Um, and and then there's a track that's kind of um, all the appropriate technology and natural building and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and, um, and, you know, and that's the same thing. It's just a whole other huge category that has all kinds of mini subcategories that gets all over the place from beginner to advanced with all the different types of ways to make shelter, um, all the different types of appropriate technologies to use, you know, because you want to have people living in this world. We're living in a time and a place where we need to realize 
what's going to help us organize effective communities, sustainable communities, given the technologies we have, and not totally ignoring them and trying to pretend like we live in the Stone Age, you know, but at the same time, keeping in mind that those Stone Age primitive skills do something to us. When you're practicing them, it's getting you in touch with a with a with an ancient part of yourself, you know, and an ancient part of what it means to be human. Um, and so, you know, and then, you know, I'll say one last thing about the classes generally is that there is a, um, you know, Asheville is is an area that's really rich in healing arts. And so that's just like a whole other element that winds up coming in is there's tons of classes in the kind of healing arts world um, that kind of enter, whether it's communication skills, whether it's um, spirituality, you know, like there's there's so many things that are the, the I think, make up the fabric of really holding communities together and helping people live in a healthy way with each other Um if they're really going to try to live off the land, you know, you don't want to, no one, it's very rare that people are going out on solo excursions and living by themselves for, you know, super long periods of time. You know, everyone, I mean, you look at most indigenous cultures, I mean, sure, there would be that type of experience, and there's always hermits, and there's always people going out and testing themselves on solo missions and, and survival experiments, but even that is, you know, nestled in a larger fabric of a real community living lifestyle um, because it's healthy and it's natural and it's what people do and I think it's what people, you know, it makes people happy and it's it's how you build a real culture and you need all these things are like preserving tradition, creating and passing on traditions, it's really nestled in building a culture and I think that, you know, there's a real sense of awareness whether it's the primitive skills or appropriate technology or the healing arts and the meditation strategies or whatever comes up in that kind of world um, of self-care and self-improvement and communication skills, um, there's a real sense of devotion to combining all these things together because we're making a culture together. Cool. I, there's a bunch in that. I mean, one of the one of the first things I, I kind of wanted to point out for people that might want to attend Firefly next year, because this is a summer thing and we've already had this year's, is that the fact that it's near Asheville opens up all kinds of additional, let's call it vacationing. So a lot of times you have a, a really gung-ho person and a spouse that's kind of like, I can do this, but it's not my thing. But right. Asheville's a cool town, and there's a lot that could be combined with a couple days at Firefly and, or even the whole thing, and then a week in Asheville. I mean, there's shops, there's great restaurants, there's great breweries, uh, uh-huh. there's the Biltmore Estates there. There's just so much there. So that was... One thing I just wanted to point out to people that if you if you're kind of dragging somebody a little bit, there's there's that negotiation point. You know, we'll spend four days doing this, and then we can go, you know, shopping for three days or whatever. But what? something I wanted to bring up too, when you were explaining this, this is a four day event. Uh-huh. So yeah. that means that like the only problem with all these classes is what the hell ones do you take? Because I mean, there's. I just start looking at that and go, well, I'd want to do this, and I'd want to do that, and I'd want to do this. But I guess that keeps people coming back over and over again. Right. Yeah, it's true. And you know what's awesome is as you come back over and over again, you realize that this gathering is part of a network of other gatherings, and there's a real community built around this entire network of gatherings. And um, and there's a really strong community of you know support from Asheville. So as people come back over and over again, you meet friends and in that area that as you come back and travel – 
then you're not just coming to the event, you're coming to visit friends too. And then also, you start finding yourself connected to a community that, oh, and they show up at Georgia at this time of the year, and they go to Florida at that time of the year, and some of them are in Kentucky or West Virginia at another time of the year. And it really, you really start seeing this community organically grow around, um, around the different places in the southeast and the different strengths and uh, the different ways of different places and different regions support people coming together at different times of the year. And Asheville in the mountains is a great time for the summer, and Florida is a great time for the winter. And, yeah. you know, early spring, the Piedmont's great. And then it kind of goes on and on and on and connects to a whole bunch of other stuff, you know. But, um, but yeah, it really is uh, – it's – it really is about joining a community and building a culture together, you know? Yeah, definitely. The other thing that I think is important, and you're kind of hitting on it there that I, I picked up on when you were talking about this. So you're talking about people that go off, and, you know, the, the the guy that says, I'm going to go off and live with my knife in the woods for two weeks on my own. And I'm not saying there's not value to that, and I'm not saying you don't learn things about yourself doing that, but this mentality that we have today that a guy's going to learn a few skills and go off and do that, it's not necessarily bad, but it's not the way things traditionally were. Everybody has these romantic stories about the Indian brave that goes off in the wilderness for a vision quest for a week on his own and all. But then, okay, the part of the story that gets left out is, well, maybe there was in a certain tribe or a certain group an initiation is part of coming into manhood of doing that. But what happened first? Well, that child grew up in a village, a community, and learned all of the skills from others as a way of life before they go off on this vision quest or spiritual quest or whatever it is for realization right. and for solitude and alone time. It's not like, hey, kid, here's a book. See you next week. And uh -huh. I think that, that we almost have that mentality going on today with, you know, the real survivalist is a guy that can go out there alone, or the real primitive skills person is a guy that can go out there alone. Well, the way that humanity traditionally survived was through small groups, hunter-gatherers, traditional craft-making. All of this stuff was built on the community nature of the human species. And mm -hmm. it's always been the case, no matter how much of a generalist the average person in a community could become, there's always actually been specialists as well due to talent, due to interest, and due to need. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, people belong in families, and families make bands, and bands make tribes, and tribes make federations, you know, and up and up and up. And, um, and yeah, it really is a – I guess one way I like to think of it is that each person has a individual, unique set of gifts to share. And it's through gift giving. You know, the real danger and that I think a lot of people are concerned about right now is seeing how their lives are just so, in so many ways, their lives just seem to be so dependent upon this really abstract, distant concept of an economy that's reduced to, to this money society that people feel heartless and, and destructive. And, you know, and I think the, the way to revision that so that economically our life does make sense because um, everything that has an economics in it, that just means home management, you know, um, is is in this kind of perspective and context that we all have gifts to share. And 
those gifts wind up creating informal debt with each other, and that informal debt ties us together in deep bonds of dependency, and and that's how we subsist. That's how we, you know, it's it's largely too how we share our love with each other is really putting time and energy and skill and focus and talent into the things you share with other people. And, um, and you know, I just can't emphasize enough how important it is and the awareness we have in this community um, to try to, like, see that in each other and to try to, like, recognize the need for things like mentoring, to recognize the need for acknowledging each other's gifts, to recognize that, yes, in a lot of ways, it's a community of generalists. It's amazing the diverse skills and talents you'll find in people. And at the same time, um, you know, it really is um, it really is about honing and developing certain skills um, because it's how we develop and evolve ourselves and develop and evolve a collective project together. And I think that project, again, being a healthy, loving community and one that's not abusing the land, and one that is building a real culture, you know? And, yeah, that's just kind of what I go to to respond to that. Yeah, and the other thing I like about what we've been kind of tapping on a little bit here is that groups like Firefly that go back to the most traditional skills have not taken the hard stance of we have to get rid of everything modern. There's this blending of... You know, there's a use for things. And kind of a story leading to the next question. One time I was out with a group of folks at a gathering, and we needed a fire made, so I got everything ready to make a fire. And then I pulled out a ferrocium rod and spiked a little uh, little kindling bundle and got the fire going. And I got heat from a guy. He's like, well, you should be doing a friction fire. And I'm like, what? Why? Right? And he's like, well, because, you know, what if you don't have your knife and your, your, your ferrocium rod? And I said, well, what if you don't have a bow drill? And you have to build one from nothing. What are you going right. to build it with, right? And then my, my other, you know, what I kind of tried to lead them to was, like, the reason to learn to make a bowl drill fire isn't really because you might not have any other way to do it. It's because it's an important skill to preserve. So right. kind of where I want to go from there is can you talk about why it's important to keep these traditional and primitive skills alive, even if we may not need to rely on them specifically to survive? Yeah, for sure. I can talk about that. It's funny. Uh I really wish that Natalie was here, the person who founded the event, because she's much more into primitive skills than me, personally. Um, she's I cool. Have, I've had her on about two years ago, so we're, uh, we're familiar they, with yeah. her. Cool. They could dig up the archives, I bet, and listen to her in a review then, um, if they want. But, yeah, I would say that um, there is a there's a experience that you feel really deep in your body when you're doing um, when you're doing a lot of the more traditional primitive skills and it creates an awareness and it plants seeds in your psyche um, that kind of retrain your mind and retrain your body to get in touch with the natural world in a much deeper way and um, and the practices when you spend all day tanning a hide um, or you spend the time it takes to learn how to make fire um, without modern technology, or you you put the custom, the craftspersonship, and the custom uh, making a design into uh, making your own clothing or 
building a primitive debris shelter even on a on a a trip or a seasonal crash pad or whatever it might be, you know, um, the experience that you have really tweaks things deep inside yourself that puts you in touch with the part of yourself that living in the modern world has been blurred, blurred over and covered up and smothered out. And, and the funny thing starts happening when you're, uh, spending all day sitting outside, panning a hide. Um, you start noticing the birds and the bird calls and the complexities and beauty of that in a way that's different than if you're sitting outside, uh, on a laptop or running a weed whacker or whatever, you know? And so I think that there's just a deep change in our psyche that happens that starts to, starts to, it creates a sensitivity and it allows us to listen to the wild and observe the natural world and communicate with it. And part of that being our bodies and ourselves is part of that, you know? Yeah, definitely. I I think there's a lot to this, too, with, with child development. So most of our kids today, I call the current generation, I used to call them teacups, and then I realized, like, my generation was the first teacups, and now we have the china plates, right? They're even worse than the teacups. <laughs> because they can't deal with failure. They can't deal with challenge. They... Every, they've been told they're special for everything. And the problem with telling a person that they're special and great all the time with no justification for some level of achievement is eventually they feel like crap about themselves because they realize, well, I haven't ever done anything, and I've always been told I'm great. And then they actually feel, instead of building up their self-esteem, we destroy it. But if we take a young person, for instance, and say, let's build a fire, and we give them enough help to get the campfire going, but we don't do it for them, and we say, here is a pack of matches. I'm going to supervise you build the fire. Well, usually they throw a bunch of big heavy logs together and stick a match to it and nothing happens. And you have to teach them the system. And then once they can start a fire, you say, okay, here's a fair seam rod. Here's how it works. See this, Sparks? Yeah, build a fire with this. They're going to fail before they get a fire. You're going right. to have to help them get through failure. And eventually if you take them and put them into building a friction fire with a, with a bow drill or a hand drill or something, you're going to fail a lot more. But there's something to failure if failure is challenged to the point of success that causes a development in people's minds and their attitude and their abilities that by making everything constantly easy and instant in this microwave society, we're robbing our children from that. Right. Yeah, we really are. It's um, it's not really the deepest kind of love and security you can put in someone when uh when you spoil and pamper them <laughs> and i think that um and at the same time there's a level of attention and intention that you do want to put into children um that is very natural and and real and deep and it's interesting what we find happening in um in our in our culture and at these types of gatherings is a very conscious mentoring program that is um, evolving kind of organically out of the whole, uh, just out of the social experiment, you could say. Um, and and it's cool because it crosses over into people that have all kinds of cool understandings and and uh, counseling and development and nature awareness and um, and all this kind of stuff. And we have, and it's funny because it's this generational game where it's really trying to fix the brokenness of how how the generations are disconnected because 
half of it is putting energy and the proper type of uh, development and love and care into kids. Another half of it is keeping elders in a sacred place in your culture and keeping them having opportunities to share their wisdom and plug in and trying to pull together all the different generations. And so we've had, like Firefly this year, for example, was we had uh, a, they call it the Ancestral Fire, and it's kept by elders in our community. And they have a series of kind of informal discussions and um, and craft circles and kind of hangout time mixed with formal classes and stuff that are geared at giving elders a space to make uh, intergenerational um, experience. And then at the same time, we have a teen program and the kids programs, and they have, um, you know, they have a, a pretty similar thing where there's kind of a, a certain level of informal bonding and hanging out and experiments happening and time being shared. Um, that's fun. And not just a structured feels like school space, you know, but then also having a, um, you know, some classes that are legit and that they're excited about and then trying to tie them together. Um, and, and so that's a pretty, it's, it's funny that, um, it's funny that that just doesn't, to some extent, that's always going to happen to some degree, but it's, it's sad that so many of us are coming from a place of such a generational brokenness that it takes a lot of intention and attention to, and time and energy to start to bring this back and kind of breathe life back into that, um, that cultural component of different generations being able to share their gifts with each other, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I'll I tell you what's encouraging to me. Um, the part of this whole thing that I'm probably the, the most active in myself individually is permaculture. That, that's what I'm, I think, most known for and what I spend a tremendous amount of time on a daily basis working on on my own property. And because of that, I've probably been to more permaculture stuff than just, you know, wilderness skills things. But I've been to a few of those, too, and I'm seeing more and more young people. And, and let me clarify that. I don't mean the 10-year-old drug alongside of his father. They may be happy to be there, but let's, let's face it. He was put in the car and brought there. I mean 17, 18, 19, low 20s, kids, uh -huh. as I call them. And when you're, you know, when you're 20 years older than anybody, it doesn't matter if you're 70 and they're 50, you call them a kid. So kids uh, on that, that, that kind of a qualifier that are – deep into this. Sometimes there's a, quite a bit of a naivety and oversimplification on how easy it's going to be to fix the world or whatever, but that optimism is what makes them special. But uh -huh. they're excited. They show up to learn. They get their hands dirty. They work. Sometimes when they get pushed a little bit with a little bit of a challenge, you can see the generational thing I was talking about show up a little bit, but with some encouragement, they're right back in there. And to me, that says that it's not a washed generation. It's a generation that's lost, right? Which is to be told, lost means they're gone, but they know they're lost, and they're looking for an answer, and they're finding their way to many of these things. Have you noticed that young crowd, if we want to call it that, coming to Firefly? Oh, man, it's, it is awesome. Like, they are stoked, you know? Um, I mean, I had... I mean, I even have some, I gave some tickets, I traded some tickets to 
a woman that has a local goat dairy that um, that her son is their locals and her son, uh, <clears throat> you know, was 17 or 18, and he was, you know, a high school kid, and he was so pumped to come. And seeing the look on his mom's face, uh, <laughs> like, of, of her talking about how excited he was, um, and then seeing, you know, seeing him at the grocery store a month or two later, and knowing that, um, knowing how far away I am from being a teenager, and knowing how I felt about adults when I was a teenager, and and knowing that, wow, this teenager thinks I'm really cool, <laughs> and he's meeting all these adults that are really cool, and there is this, um, you know, it's awesome to have uh, a scene, you know, that's sexy and cool and awesome and and healthy and wise and reasonable and meaningful, um, and to have kids drawn to that, you know, um, and... And so it's really, really great to, to, to kind of feel this. It also does something. I think like I'm in midlife, you know, and I, it, it's kind of funny. I think about, you know, people in midlife just feeling like, oh, I grew up and the best days are behind me, and I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm not like you're you're doing anything that's really cool anymore, you know. And to be doing stuff and to know like, wow, look at all these adults that are awesome and youthful in spirit and still uh, just radical, down-the-earth, cool people in the way they're living their lives. And, and it's cool to see kids look up to what they should be looking up to. You know? That's the other thing I've seen with permaculture, right? So, you, like, the last PDC I spoke at, um, there was a woman there that I didn't ask her her age, but she was she was 65 if she was two. She could have been mm-hmm. 70. She could have been anywhere in there. And she looked like a very healthy 65. This lady knew every Latin name of every plant and every purpose for every plant that you could you could hand to her and you could see some of these kids there were there was another group at this PDC that were probably average about 18 I'd say 17 to 22 it was a, about six kids that had come there together and you could see almost this grandmother grandchild relationship going on with them going off and finding stuff and bringing it to her during the downtime, and what is this, and what does this do, and taking notes, and, and, and you're thinking, in many instances, the children of today don't have that relationship with that matriarch of the family. And for these types of things to work, we need those that young blood coming in, but you need the elders, right? you got to have that, too. And when you have that cross-spectrum, and then the other thing you were hitting on is, like, you know, at your age, I don't know how old you're, I'm in my 40s, so I'm kind of midlife, I, I look at it that way. And I was just talking to my wife about this the other day, about how when I occasionally email or Skype someone from high school or my Army days, they always mm-hmm. say, remember the good old days. You remember the good old days. And I'm like, right. that's now. I have no desire to go <laughs> back to being 19 ever again. I I love my life today, and I think that this path makes people feel that way. Awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I totally – I kept having this kind of – I just turned 30 this year, and okay. I um, I don't know. I guess I spent my whole 20s feeling like I'm in the prime of my life and looking at people, you know, five years older than me, um, being like, gosh, I'm going to get burnt out. I'm going to get burnt out. It's like I only have a couple more years left in my youth. I only have a couple more years left in my youth, and, and I think just because of being healthy and the type of – the type of culture that it really creates stuff like permaculture and earth skills and uh, 
you know, in healing arts and all this kind of stuff that you find at the gathering, um, it just creates people that are so healthy that, you know, of course the body ages, but your spirit stays youthful and and inquisitive and fun and excited and vibrant, and you still have that vitality in your body. And I just turned 30 just being like, oh, well, like, it only gets better. <laughs> and, yeah. like, my body feels just as vibrant as ever, and my health feels just as good as ever, and um, and I feel just as good as ever in every way I can imagine, and, and better than ever. And, um, and I, I know people that are 75 that... Um, that would say that, you know, and those are the people I want to look up to and learn from. Well, and then there's the lifestyle if you actually integrate these principles into your life. So this morning I had a conversation with my ducks. I'm sure they had no idea what I was saying, and I didn't know what they were saying, but I have to tell you it was more productive than the morning meetings I used to have with my staff. And Uh it 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 was far more beneficial to me psychologically and, uh, you know, in return, I have meat and eggs for my time uh, versus more work. So mm-hmm. it just seems like there there was a, a point in time in human history where we developed enough stuff and enough technology to live relatively comfortably and not lose the connection. And that somewhere along the way, we crossed that border and we put comfort so far ahead of mental conditioning and and overall happiness that we 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 had I think you know what they my generation is what they call the lost generation generation X the 80s me generation where all the stuff came so fast it was like oh look at this thing look at this thing look at that thing and uh-huh. and, and and fortunately I think that there are people in in my age group that like we we left it, but then we're like, duh, this sucks. We're, and we ran back, and and that creates that bridge, that multi generational bridge. Because I think it has to be there. I think if you had a gathering where everybody was young and old, and there was nobody in the middle, you'd have a problem. And any group, if you pull it out, the ability for that community to interact and people to understand each other and 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 bridge gaps of understanding gets lost. Right. Yeah. It's. Yeah, there's a the real, I feel like there's a real function of midlife where, where you, and I feel like I'm just beginning my journey of my midlife, you know, uh, but I, I feel like there's an awareness that you realize it's your job to be the bridge builder and you realize it's your job to be the shapeshifter and it's your job to connect dots and, um, you know, and it's a deep, you know, it's a really, really deep responsibility. And I think in a lot of ways, um, in traditional societies, you know, that, you know, I think in our culture we think of people in midlife as the providers. And it's like when you really need to be working all the time to make all the money to provide. And that's certainly a reality in our society. Um, but I think what that's, what that's missing is a layer underneath that that's even deeper that... Um, that you're not just the provider holding the thing together, holding the family together, holding the community together um, in economic terms, but in a deeper cultural and emotional way, you're, you're keeping that cultural bridge there, um, and, you're, and you're able to shape-shift those different spaces because you grew up with one generation that came before you, and you're growing up with another generation that's, you know, that's coming after you, and it's this... Um, it's this really amazing thing. The way I really think about it is that 
you it puts you in this position of healing your through the proper growth and maturity and healthy living, you're kind of healing your ancestral baggage and healing your ancestral wounds by by doing that work and and helping it connect to the future in a way and helping the, the future generations um, um, learn from the mistakes of the past or Definitely. the healthy traditions of the past or, you know, you're deciding what to take and what to leave and through being that bridge, uh, that bridge builder, you know? <clears throat> Definitely. I think it takes the, the term responsibility to a totally different level. Like, we've been misled today that responsible means paying your credit cards on time and holding a job, right? That responsibility in a multi-generational community is about what you leave behind, what you're teaching, what you're learning, perfecting your craft, becoming a generalist in many things but a master of a few, and, and then passing that on to, you know, even if it's not formalized, you'd call it apprentices. And to me, the the way you know if a person truly is a master at something, does he have students? And if, if the student's not there, he's not a master. And not because people want to study with a master, because in your teaching is where you actually become a master. Oh, right? You yeah. learn so much more teaching than you will ever learn by following. I find my greatest moments of learning always lie in teaching. Yes. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. I don't even know what to say to that other than, you know, I, t- I totally agree with you. That is when you start having that experience, when you have your own skills and crafts honed enough, um, as soon as you hit that point where you're like, I know what I'm doing, then you start teaching, and then you realize, oh, I'm just beginning to know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and it so deepens the experience um, because, you know, it's just like, you know, I think a really good parent knows, oh, I'm learning just so much from this kid as I'm teaching this kid. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Really good teacher. You know, you're learning just as much from your students because they're all going to, they're all going to test you and challenge you in different ways and push you in different ways. And, uh, you know, you said it. Definitely. Um, the other thing I've, I've noticed uh, with groups like Firefly is that not only are there like, you know, kind of extended events, people run, you know, things that specialize, whatever, but the skills tend to translate to lifestyles outside of events and gatherings. I've I've been to some where you kind of feel like, well, everybody's going to put buckskins on and be a mountain man for this weekend, and then they're going to go back home, jump in their Lexus, and go back to work, where right. there seems to be a lot more translation to, to lifestyle going on, not just with Firefly, but I think everywhere now, like, Instead of it just being like a reenactment weekend, it's actually let's establish these skills so we can use them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think of this really funny story where uh, Natalie, who you interviewed, uh, you know, two years ago, who actually founded this event, um, one of the people who founded this event, another one of my friends was talking about one of their favorite memories in Asheville was they'd been out of town for a while and they came back in town and they saw her walk out of a cafe in downtown Asheville with her laptop, and she was totally covered in buckskin. <laughs> and, and because it's not, it's not a, it's not a game. People are just going and playing for the weekend or just on their vacation. You know, it's like people are making their clothes and they're wearing them around in their day-to-day life. People are growing their food. People are, you know, making. I mean, honestly, it's it's hard to even going on and on about specific examples because it's everything, you know? 
it's, it's, it's basically everything that doesn't take a super highly sophisticated industrial society to put together like a laptop or a car. I mean, no one's making their own laptop from scratch or a cell phone, you know, but, you know, all the basic needs, you know, like it's pretty amazing how much people are carrying that into their day-to-day life um, and how much it makes up your subsistence and the tools you use and the crafts you have um, and the gifts you share. Um, it really is a world made by hand. And, uh, and, uh, and it's working, you know, and it's, it does something really funny. Um, if I could share a, an interesting anecdote, I think when you make a world by hand, what happens is um, I heard a, a teacher once talk about um, how everything we make is puts us in debt in this funny way, you know. Like, and debt's a scary word because we think of this horrible financial modern credit type of concept of how the modern money system works. But, um, but there, there's a book I'd recommend people to read. It's called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. And it's largely about indigenous societies. And, um, and he makes the point that before there was money and finance and, um, you know, that in, a, in any sort of economy based on money exchange and abstract value of stuff and currency, that basically there was, um, informal debt networks, that, and that's how the economies were managed in indigenous cultures. Um, because when you actually trust people, you can go in debt to them. Um, and in, in an informal kind of way of gift-giving and gift exchange, and you don't have to worry about keeping track of every little thing. Um, and so, and those, that debt concept carries over not just in between people, but how our when you belong to a place, you have a sense of home. You really are a, are a steward of a place and of a, of a land base. Um, you, you know, human existence and human subsistence has a process of taking from the land, you know. Um, and, and that's okay because when you really, when you fully realize how indebted you are to the land, then you start putting together the practices and the rituals and the experience and the culture where you're also giving back. Because when you're in debt, what do you do? You pay your debts back. Um, and it's really just this, this way of talking about giving and taking and sharing and belonging. Um, and I think with making a world by hand and a custom craft world that meets our needs and takes care of us, what you realize is that there's a certain type of energy that goes into when someone makes um, a quilt, you know, or someone makes a, a, an article of clothing, or someone makes you a knife from, you know, they blacksmith themselves. The antler, you know, they, they killed the deer with a bow they made, and the antler is the, is the handle on that knife that they blacksmith. I have a knife that a friend, that's the story of that knife. That knife has a certain quality of sentimental value to me that, is so different than even the coolest knife of high carbon steel of an industrial manufacturing process because I know that that person, uh, there's a spiritual quality and a sacredness that they put into that knife. Um, and I think that when human beings really get in touch with, with a craft culture on that level, um, 
the type of scale and production that allows you to make, for example, a huge war machine, <laughs> you know, and the type of psyche of the people that would make a, a huge war machine, it's really tweaked, and it's a different type of experience. Instead of looking out and conquer and dominate our world and feeling estranged and alienated from the land and other peoples, there's a sense of connection and indebtedness and bonding that you have instead. And I think that, you know, a real culture of, of uh, security and peace and love and healthy human existence, you know, it ha- in my mind, it really has to come from, you know, this process of us being that in touch with our day-to-day life really being made by hand, made by our hands, and made by a slow, uh, meaningful, uh, you know, connected process, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. There's so much there. I mean, first of all, you have me going on now mentally about this concept of a different way to see debt, and Uh the debt of repayment based on the actions of others in a positive way versus the financial chains of debt. And then the the, the handcrafted concept, it's not that mass production doesn't work for anything well. I mean, like you just mentioned, a laptop. I get a lot of utility out of a laptop, and I don't want to try to make laptops cost $50,000 for each each one hand-soldered by an individual. But things like like knives and just things in general that we use, by Uh by moving to a mass market, what we've done is cheapened everything. So you think Mm -hmm. since everything is cheaper, people would spend less money or less resources to acquire things. Well, it's totally opposite. Since we've cheapened everything, we've created a throwaway society. And since Uh this shiny thing doesn't give me fulfillment anymore, I need a new one. Mm -hmm. And I don't need a new one to fill the purpose of the first one. I need a new one to fill the hole in the void in me. And that's what leads to all the negative debt. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of truth in what you're saying there. I think that it's one of those things that maybe people should, since this is a podcast, possibly rewind and if not listening to this whole episode again, listen to that segment again. I know I will, even though I sat through here at live, because I think I can pull about 15 podcasts out of what you said right there. Um, so that's, that's when you've done something really, really meaningful. We are rounding out the end of an hour, though, and if I go down that path with you, we'll go another hour, and I know you have other commitments today. Um, but could you tell people how they learn more about Firefly, how they can hook up with you and other members that are involved, how they can attend, and maybe how they can learn about other opportunities that are, exist throughout the year other than just the Firefly gathering? Yeah, definitely. Um um, so we have a website, fireflygathering.org, and um, I know it's really hard for me to start talking about specific classes. I'm trying to keep it really big picture for the purpose of this interview, um, but please feel free to go on the Internet. The schedule will be up from last year, which will give you an idea of the type of thing that you could expect next year, too. Um, it won't be exactly the same, but... Um, but we have the schedule. You can get a real sense of the type of classes that are going to be there. Um, there's a whole, you know, any other information you need is on there, where it's at, how much it costs, work trade opportunities. Um, if there's people that um, haven't taught before and feel like they would like to apply to be an instructor, there's an application on the Internet there. Pretty much everything you need to know is on our website. Um, I think there's YouTube videos. 
um, that you can pull up that have been made in the past from, from the gathering. Uh, there's links to other podcasts, um, we've done in the past. So there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and basically, um, the website is the easiest place to find it all. You could email me at, um, classes at fireflygathering.org. Um, I'll also give people my personal email because I don't check the Firefly email. Um, <laughs> probably I won't be checking it that much until I start organizing next year's, uh, you know, early spring. But my email is, is justfuture365 at gmail.com. Um, if there's anything that's really pressing or they want to talk about or any questions, um, there's also the, the info at Firefly that goes to someone else that's at the, help us run the website and a different staff member. Um, and that's info at fireflygathering.org. Um, and I'll just say, too, one more thing is just check out the other gatherings because you don't have to wait till next summer. There's the Florida Earth Skills Gathering. There's the rendezvous in Georgia in the spring and the fall that are the oldest ones in the country. Um, and that's Earth Skills Rendezvous. Um, basically, just Google it. They all connect and link to each other um, on our website and all the different types of classes. And, you know, most of our teachers at the gathering make a living doing this, and they have uh, programs throughout the year and internships and apprenticeships throughout the year, work trade positions throughout the year, or just classes uh, in various cities and towns and communities around the southeast throughout the year. So hop on the Internet, check it out, and uh, Google around, and it's, it's a community that has a digital presence and is open to, to communicating and is accessible. So we're, we're there. Yeah, I'd say that a lot of things could be found out just by looking at your schedule, seeing the instructor, looking up that instructor if they're teaching something yeah. you're interested in. You may find they have their own website, their own classes and things like that. Um, and if, if not, contacting them you know, may lead you to somebody that does or closer to your area. So that would be cool too because I'm sure these guys appreciate – you know, gaining students outside of Firefly from the exposure they get there. I know I've always appreciated that. It's not the motivation for doing it, but it's certainly helpful that there's some sort of a return value for value. I think a lot of what you were talking about in your last piece was the value for value exchange with, you know, the concept of debt, that there's a value to something like a handmade knife or a handcrafted item that is not necessarily monetary, and often that that debt is best best repaid repaid with barter versus right. money because that's the only thing that can actually meet that value is something that had the same type of thing go into it. But right. we all do have to pay our bills, so uh, right. being able to put students in a course also helps us do that and continue to do the work that we do. So uh, I'm sure a lot of those folks would appreciate that. And thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for being with us here today. Yeah, man. I hope uh, I hope it was worth an hour of your time, other people's time, and uh, it's definitely worth an hour of my time. And thank you for what you're doing. It's a total uh, service, and good to see people. You know, whatever we're gonna do, other than devote ourselves to what we care about, and you know, making the world we want to make. You know. Absolutely. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearco today, along with Frank Salzano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer.
Yeah. 